Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all right. Please tell us about your practice and what it entails. Okay, so I suppose I'm still uh, figuring it out. I'm in my honours year. But at the moment, I'm, I suppose I'm researching uh, different methods of generative institutional critique. So my hope is that I can form um, new political coalitions that have artistic, kind of like artistic aspects and that utilise artistic devices and stuff but that also retain the shape of, of political groups as well, but that those groups, groupings and organisations and coalitions and stuff can have lots of different forms and they can exist for different periods of time and align in different ways and stuff. So the idea is that you, or my hope, I suppose, is that by, and I think this is sort of what happened with, with Stand With Tess and with my involvement in that, and <clears throat> my you know, my friends who were involved in that with me, I think we found, <clears throat> pardon me, that it kind of created, you did one initial interruption or intervention and then it goes on to create these other forms of political actions and alliances and stuff. So that's sort of what I'm looking at right now and there's different aspects of performance and theatre, what's called like a, a, a real fiction theatre of the real sort of thing and different disruptive forms so performance is a little bit part of it and you know I still I suppose previous to that I obviously don't have a, a history to talk about because because you know I'm still a student and everything but prior to that I'd been working on um, installations and more sculptural sort of works public installations and stuff so I think that can still figure in it as well somewhere along the road oh yeah how has COVID-19 affected your practice? Well, I suppose now I'm much more focused on collecting information and doing my research. So I've been spending a lot of time reading, trying to learn from what um, other collectives and other artists and other political kind of grassroots protest groups and stuff have have done so you know I've I've been reading um, uh, Yates McKee talking about uh, the Occupy Wall Street protests and, and that movement and the different ways that artists are involved not just sort of as artists as we would conventionally know them but also as uh, organizers and creative thinkers and all this sort of stuff and yeah I mean I suppose who else have I been reading I've been reading about MTL collective as well and a sort of political coalition that they facilitated called Decolonize This Place um, and that's really cool as well so yeah I've been doing a lot of research and trying to learn from other people and stuff but also I suppose I've had to work on my, my laptop as well so I've been producing posters and different forms of um, propaganda and uh, you know putting uh, information and these sort of things together you know I found out some really, really fascinating things that that I'm glad I know now about in particular about the university so when I talk about institutional critique I'm, I'm talking about um, our university you know the uni of New South Wales so 
yeah I mean for instance you know I found which still to me is sort of baffling and also makes a lot of sense at the same time is that Ian Jacobs our vice chancellor makes some uh, more money annually than his uh, counterparts at Cambridge and Oxford which is quite incredible to me so anyway I've been doing research about these sort of things and coming to understand a few more things so I'm not sure really what my practice is now but but I suppose it's more to do with research and compiling information and trying to distribute it. Has COVID-19 affected you in general? It affects affects everything I suppose you know there's a whole new uh, way of, of interacting and not interacting with people you know I've had my my concerns as well you know living in um, a share house of course as well and you know I have uh, I have good housemates and everything they're great but of course you know you have your your little concerns and fortunately we're in the most in terms of our circumstances I guess we're in one of the most privileged positions in the world now so that's you know that's really amazing and everything so I, I suppose I feel pretty good now I hope there's no second wave I feel like there may be but hopefully not but yeah I don't know I suppose I've spent a lot more time as with everyone else I would imagine by myself you know in my room and stuff again trying to trying to be productive and started playing the guitar again that's been nice um so yeah i mean i've been anxious and 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 worried the same way i think that a lot of other people have but fortunately i've i've had things to do and and just tried to keep busy so you know you try to make something of the time i suppose yeah hopefully we're on the other side of it now definitely have you been watching a lot of news or not as much or well I, I think, you know, similar to some of our conversations when you contributed your, your recent essay about, you know, how you were choosing to engage and not engage with social media um, for framework, I've had, I suppose, um, maybe a similar kind of ethos that you, you have, but in terms of, of news. So, I mean, my level of engagement has been that I watch the, I, I check the numbers through The Guardian and then I watch the daily wrap up with the statistics uh, and that goes for about, you know, uh, eight minutes or something like that. And that's the, the, I think it's ABC where they do that and they have that great analyst. And if Norman Swan's on, I'll watch Norman Swan because I, I like him as well. And I like the way they put things, they're realistic. Um, they're all about the numbers and everything and the professionals you know I just I haven't focused on the commentaries that say you know talk about it's not that I'm not listening but I don't know that it's particularly uh, helpful to listen to the sort of soothsayers or whatever you know Mm. because so to speak I guess yeah because I, I like to know, yeah, sure, the projections about what may may be coming, but, but I don't want to be kind of, you know, constantly listening to doomsday sayers. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's been my kind of level of engagement with the news. I just kind of listen what the numbers are, 
what we're being told to do, what the policies are from the government, you know, um, and get on with it that way. And, you know, like somehow for me, unemployment is less, uh, less of a frightening prospect when the way that you're engaging with it is listening to people talk through the numbers and talk through what has to be done at a governmental level and in the job force and you know also because to some like first of all you speak about it in a way that's not just saying this is going to be unimaginably terrible or something because you you can go on all day you know thinking about that and you'll never really you know you'll always be able to create some awful scenario in your mind Mm -hmm. so I don't you know I'm sure that there are hard times to come but I prefer to engage with I don't know something that's a little bit more objective and a little bit less kind of fear-mongering. And I try not to pay too much attention to America, so um, to the news coming out of America. I feel so terrible for the the, the good people that are there. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it's um, I think it's symptomatic anyway, what's happened over there, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. I was um, watching one of, well, trying to watch one of our Prime Minister's press conferences and he had pie charts and I'm like, oh, I don't understand pie charts. Do you understand pie (laughs) charts? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the good thing is that that I think um, they've they've done a fairly good job of explaining some of the things, but I know you can get so lost in it and that's Mm. why I like... Uh, often what I do as well is I'll listen to the first two minutes where they just tell you if I really don't have it in me and I feel just like uh, you know I, I don't want to engage with this I think we're made to feel you know like that means that you're being uh, lazy or maybe you're being sort of you know you're not engaging at the level that you should or something but I, I don't think that's the case I think it's okay to just listen to the first few minutes where, pardon me, where you get the headlines and you say, okay, now I know where we're at and I'm, I'm going to choose to engage later on if I want to. You don't have to listen yeah. to all the commentary about it later on, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, but the pie charts, I know. Well, it's the, the, some of the other graphs that get me are <laughs> more confusing, but, um, but yeah... I have been enjoying the the well enjoying it. I've been finding it useful. The um the Guardian resources that they have they're really good. So yeah, that's been quite useful. Oh yeah. What's been the most difficult thing about lockdown for you? I think you know, like I suppose the the lack of um, balance or the the lack of sort of um, yeah. I think balance is probably a good way to 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 describe what's lacking uh, yeah I mean I in some ways have enjoyed the opportunity to kind of order my day the way that I'd like to and you know I, I think the morning is something I know this sounds really ridiculous but the morning I, I always have disliked <laughs> getting up in the morning and having to eat because you know I'm, I'm kind of rushing out of the door and that sort of thing so um you know in some ways i've been having quite a peaceful time because things have slowed down and that's not to say i haven't been anxious because i have been 
but in some ways there there are these amazing kind of moments of perhaps not peace but kind of quiet and and something a little bit slow and everything I think that seeing friends uh, leaving the house you know really getting to do proper exercise being around people you know being around I guess our community really all of our mates from uni and the other people that we know from around the place and everything I mean I miss I miss that I miss all of those those social interactions and and I miss being able to go out and you know I'm really starting to <laughs> I never quite thought I'd say this but um, I'm really missing going out and dancing as well you know <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's not that I'm a dancer or anything but I, I don't think I realized how much of a necessary um, release going out and socializing and partying and it's not just that I miss partying, you know, but um, but that's part of it, you know. Generally, I just miss my friends. I miss sitting in the park with my friends. Mm. Have yeah. you discovered the house party app? Oh, um, I've heard about it. What's the app again? It's. I think it's you like you can watch movies, right, with people or something. Yeah, well, you. I think it's kind of like um, Zoom and all that, but. Um, encourages you to try and have parties with your friends on these um, apps um, mm. at home but like you know video videoing your friends I don't know how that works I haven't really tried it but yeah that's something <laughs> yeah I mean stuff like that has been has been um, really nice I um, uh, and and super necessary as well there's one of our one of our um, uh, friends from uni started this. What is it called again? Room to Radio. Um, have you heard about Room to Radio? No. That's really really cool. They do it every. I'm pretty sure it's still going. I, do, I haven't um, watched it. I think last week I missed it, so I'm not sure. But it's. In their house, you know, they have uh, uh, DJ decks and all this sort of stuff and lights and I don't know. It's pretty cool. Basically, they just invite everyone to come onto Facebook Live and this other, another one of those sharing apps like House Party or Zoom, that sort of thing. And they have someone DJing and they have all the lights going and a bunch of them who live in the house will be dancing in the room and you're sort of invited into it to to kind of dance with them and um i just thought it i thought it was so brilliant you know and takes um in a lot of ways when and they started it right at the beginning of lockdown as well when everyone was particularly anxious and scared and you know i think it took a lot of courage it takes a lot of courage to make people smile and have fun and remember that there are nice things in life you know at a really bad time because I think a lot of people think that it's it's inappropriate or something so it takes a lot of courage to do it and do it in the right way and stuff so yeah that that, that was really great what they did that room to radio you should everyone should check it out it's really cool yeah definitely mm. 
I noticed that at the start of the pandemic, I, I was saying stay safe instead of having fun because I thought it was inappropriate to say have fun and then people would still look at me going oh, you're reminding me of what's going on so yeah. but I think we've all gotten used to the whole stay safe thing now yeah totally and I think stay safe as a as a, a nice that's a nice thing to say you know yeah it's a, it's a caring thing isn't it yeah because I don't know like how someone's feeling if I say have fun they might go oh and and not feel like it so yeah I feel like staying safe is an appropriate thing to say now. Yeah, exactly. Or if, if you just say, you know, don't forget to smile or something or take care of yourself. You know, it's pretty much the same thing as saying that, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Are you getting sick of hearing people say things like, oh, wash your hands and all that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I, no, I don't think I'm sick of it. I think... Um, I don't, like, not many of my, you know, people that I'm interacting with online or whatever, or my housemates are, are telling me to do it, so so I'm not getting it there, I'm only getting it from, from, you know, whatever, the media and TV shows and that sort of stuff, and mm. I guess, like, I'm, I'm just glad that there are public kind of... Um, those public-facing kind of, well, what would you say, sources or whatever, I don't know, that they're reminding people and, um, you know, I, I don't know. I actually think some of the, the ads that have been um, uh, doing the rounds have been really nice and, yeah, I don't know. I think it's been good. I'm, I'm not sick of it yet, I, I don't know, but I'm not getting told to wash my hands so much. But, of course... I am washing my hands, so... Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Have you discovered a new talent at the moment? Uh, yeah, I had a... Um, yeah, I was trying to think about this. Um, uh, hmm. I don't know, I still can't quite figure it out. You know what I... As I said, though, I have gotten back into my guitar, which, is, which has been great. Like, when the lockdown was just about to begin... And, you know, when it was right at the beginning and we'd only, um, the, the restriction was, you know, five gatherings of 500 people or more were, were um, forbidden. And um, when that happened, I thought, right, okay, I'd better get something new to amuse myself. So I hadn't played the guitar in quite a few years, but I used to really love music and, and I thought I'd like to be a musician and stuff. So. Anyway, I got a little nylon string guitar back, and so I've kind of rediscovered an old interest, and that's been pretty awesome, actually. And you know, another nice thing that I've done with that is one of my my really good friends. We we play guitar now over over Facebook or Zoom or something, and we'll play guitar and <laughs> and sing together and stuff. So it's which is really nice. Yeah. yeah. So I've kind of rediscovered an old one. I don't know if I've gotten any new talents. I'm pretty good at... I think I'm better at cleaning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it was okay at cleaning before, but now there's, you know, it's a bit more of an Im imperative thing. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, what has Arkhead 
headquarters looked like in lockdown? Well, um, so Art and Design Campus, of course, it's it's been closed, you know. So, mm. so real HQ or whatever on on main campus, the the head office or, or whatever we would call it over there is, I don't quite know. But we're you know we're online at the moment, you know it's it's not in a terrific way, just as with well just about everyone else I suppose. So we're just waiting for uh, things to reopen and and hopefully everything will um, begin to return to normalcy. But you know I have to say I think. Um, you become acutely aware of the fact that ARC is an, a student association, um, which, in other words, sort of means that it's, you know, officially it's a not-for-profit. Ostensibly because of, I think as a consequence anyway, of anti-union legislation. So. ARC used to be a union and now it sort of acts as a bit of a hamstrung union in the, the best way that it can and I think it it does a pretty good job, you know, of course I think there are places, you know, there, there are various things that we could do a lot better, but anyway at times like this you become really aware of of just how how difficult it's become for us to be, to act as a, a sort of unofficial union particularly in my position on the student council and I, you know which falls kind of within arc but is also slightly autonomous you know but but really is within arc officially and budgetary stuff and all the rest of it so it's hard because you know of course as soon as the income streams are lost for a not-for-profit you're in 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 big trouble i guess and um that's meant that you know there there aren't really budgets for for the council and for others at this time so it's sad and I to be honest you know I feel I have felt quite poorly about it uh, I suppose because I, it's my job um, on the council and and in a di very different way as the writers coordinator to to be engaging with the cohort and to try and, and you know, at this time in particular, um, we needed student representation and there was just, there's very, very little that that I or any of the other council officers could do, you know, you have the budget taken away and the organisation sort of goes entirely online and, yeah, so, so ARC looks... Um, looks very different at the moment. There are a lot of people doing lots of great things there as well and trying to engage and I, I think it's really good that um, uh, they've set up um, uh, little sessions, consultation sessions with the um, uh, legal um, team at ARC as well and you know so there's lots of stuff where you know people are doing their best and I, I'm not blaming anyone for the way things are but but I do think it's um, it's had that unfortunate effect I think yeah yeah so uh, so you're nobody's going into the office it's all from home at the moment I'm guessing um, 
yeah, on my understanding, so um, our team at Art and Design um, has been that way, and as I understand it, Main Campus has been that way as well. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, that's that's my understanding. You know, I'm. Yeah, actually, I I, I don't know with with like university management. I'm I'm sure. A few of, I mean, there are still people at the uni, you know, there have to be, I think, the uh, different members of the maintenance staff and the state management and stuff are still going around our campus looking after things, and that's great. Mm. So I would imagine there are people from management walking around, and if that's the case, on main campus there, I don't know, there may be one or two managers, but that's all just speculation, I have no idea really. From what I understand, we're all in lockdown, and the office definitely isn't open. It's it's all shut. So, um, so you know, um, in, in so many words, basically. So, anyway, it was about kind of just saying, okay, let's just that'll be the process. So let's prepare ourselves, and I don't know. Hopefully, one or two things improved, uh, but I'm, you know, there there wasn't. Unfortunately, there wasn't much to be done other than to to minimise some fears and try and distribute information. And there was a great community of people who were spreading information around, especially about uh, different welfare services for students and job seekers and all the rest of it. So I think people made more informed decisions than they would otherwise have have made. So I tried to contribute to that. Well, obviously, you've stayed in contact with your creative community at this time. Do you like the way you've been able to do that or do you feel like you miss face-to-face more? Like, do you struggle with the technology? Um, Yeah, sometimes, and sometimes the technology lets you down. And, yeah, of course, my preference would be to, to be, you know, with people. So... So yeah, definitely. But I feel very fortunate that you know our kind of you know you think about equivalent kind of global and even whatever national or local events that that have this kind of gravity or magnitude or whatever to them. And this is peculiar in lots of ways, I guess. The, COVID-19 pandemic virus but nonetheless you look at the way that other people have experienced things and we're fortunate that we're one of the fortunate parts of being in such a connected network society uh, has been that we can keep in contact there's a bad side to that as well and I think for a lot of people who particularly university workers who have remained employed it's great that they've remained employed but you know, there's even more pressure for, uh, I suppose, for work to occur essentially at all hours of the day. So, uh, I don't know, I mean, in one respect, it continues to have what I would consider to be adverse effects, broadly kind of neoliberal uh, uh, workforce kind of situation where you have these really sort of um, 
slow whittling away of, of the rights that workers have won over the, the last, well, however long, quite a while, I guess. But it's great that we're all in contact as well. I don't want to think about what isolation would have been like if we couldn't have, you know, I guess we could have phoned each other before, so that would have still been one way of doing it. But if it occurred before that, my God, we'd be sending letters or something. I suppose yeah. that's not so bad. But it's been good, hasn't it? Having, having the ability to, having that technology has been really useful in that way. Definitely. I think that we've, the fact that we've had to depend on it, we've had to develop a technology more in, in the way that we use it. So I find that that's the most interesting part of these times, mm. is the technology part. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Although I do miss face-to-face, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So have, have you started using VR technology at the moment? No, no, I haven't. I still, still haven't gone into to VR or anything. I'm trying to think if I've used any interesting technology. I don't really think I have. I've remained relatively um, ignorant on that side of things, I suppose. Well, um, no, I don't know. No, I haven't used VR, certainly. I haven't used VR. Have you been using it? Yes. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, it's pretty funny. Well, um, what you're doing with your gallery is kind of VR, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's some um, interactive VR. Um, and when I started, I had no idea what much about VR. But yeah, I I definitely recommend. Um, you know, if you miss going out, um, you know, to have fun, checking out VR because it's not the same. But I don't know. I f- I find that it's amusing that it's not the same. Yeah, totally. It's at least like a world that you can walk around in. I can understand that. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I'll definitely have to do it with the gallery. I have done one or two little gallery things, and yeah, at the very least, I've been watching videos, but you know, I know that's not virtual reality. Okay. Yeah, what do you think about Scott Morrison's leadership at this time? Well, at this time, I think. Um, you know, I guess we have to be careful in Australia to, to, to mind our own context, if you know what I mean. So, Mm. um, his, his leadership is, is much less kind of centralized or, or unilateral or whatever than it is in America in the sense that, you know, he, he still does lead, uh, a cabinet and, it's not just been him, I suppose, is what I would say. So I think, for instance, what I'm referring, what I'm sort of thinking about is, I think a lot of what has occurred in terms of our restrictions and, and uh, specifically about the speed and the, the magnitude of the restrictions, which have been pretty broadly thought of on my, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to give some. I'm reticent to give like a political analysis because I'm just a student who's studying art. But in my opinion, <laughs> you know, it seems to be that everyone's saying how important it was that we reacted quickly and that we we had a proper bunch of restrictions and 
you know, I think it could have happened a week or two earlier, but nonetheless, we're in a good situation. But what I was going to say was that it was also the influence of, of different uh, state premiers and in particular our own and um, Victoria's premier, I think his name is Dan Andrews or something, I can't quite remember, but I should know, but I can't remember it right now. Um, so anyway, you know, like, it's been interesting because, like, there's more need for political bipartisan sort of uh, coordination, and I think that's been a really, really good thing. We're so fortunate in this country, so fortunate that we live in a society in which it just wasn't acceptable to not listen to the medical officials. Mm. So I, I think that is such a huge privilege. Thank God for that. Thank God Scott Morrison's not walking into those, uh, that, that he knows implicitly that he can't walk into a, a press conference and start speculating on what what medicine he thinks as a politician with a background in advertising, what he thinks might be, you know, a good way of uh, mitigating this risk of COVID-19 or the symptoms or whatever, like he's a doctor. So it's been really good that, that there's been political, you know, uh, across different political delineations and divisions and stuff, there's been coordination, sensible coordination, and that they've listened to the, the officials and all this sort of stuff. So ironically enough, what I would suggest has been good leadership in this case has been a leadership that's not uh, been, well, that's been the opposite of authoritarian, which is what Trump has been, you know, incarnate, you know, or Bolsonaro. They're not listening to anyone, really. They disdain the law, they disdain their own political uh, systems and, and their own political conventions and, uh, you know, it's ruled by decree or by it's not rule of law, it's rule of order, all these kind of things. So anyway, I think we live in a fortunate society and I think that fortunately his his good work in this case has been not thinking that it was all up to his, you know, uh, decree or genius or whatever else. It's mm. been about coordination through all these people who know. And it, I think... Also, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, the, the way that state leaders have been able to make their own decisions has turned out, I think, fairly well also. So, because uh, as I said, the influence of Victoria and New South Wales on different decisions that have been made seems to have been really positive, but there's a lot that we wouldn't know. But anyway. Mm. I was particularly impressed that Scott Morrison was not happy about the World Health Organization reopening the wet markets. I thought that's good because I wasn't happy um, that they were thinking yeah. of doing that because that's where they reckon COVID-19 came from. Mm. So. Yeah, well, you know, and this is another th one of those things where I've, you know, I, it, it's all very complex and, um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know about about all of that. I don't um, doubt that that's the best information we have currently. But I also wouldn't mm. be surprised if 
if it originated elsewhere. And you know, it's these are uh, are well informed theories at the moment. So yeah, so I it's mm. there's no reason not to believe it, but we should be careful also with the conclusions we make. But you know, I don't I don't have a particularly sympathetic view for the regimes that rule in America or in the, the American or the Chinese regimes. I think they're both awful. Mm. And, um, you know, what, what China's doing in the South China Sea at this time is despicable. The way that, uh, my God, the American leadership, I mean, opening up work and everything just seems to me it, they, mm. they don't care about people's health. It's, it's just about money. So it's awful. Yeah. Ever since Trump became pre- president, I've been waiting for him to stop being president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the worst. Yeah, I think. Yeah. He's right <laughs> yeah, up he's, there. Yeah, but, he's awful. Yeah. <laughs> One of the worst leaders. But I didn't know that yeah. much about other world leaders, so. Yeah, well, there are lots of other ones out there, and there are, there's an, a few notions that, you know, it's part of a, a global trend. Oh right, yeah. Um, I, it seems plausible anyway. It's pretty con- actually. It's pretty convincing, really. Mm. You, all these different kind of spread of vaguely right-wing populism and quite sort of reactionary and yeah, these kind of authoritarian leaders who get into government and then like I think I read something interesting about Trump the other day, which was actually written a few years ago as well, that he got into government <laughs> somehow having forgotten that he would have to govern and I think that's a really good description of, of his you know his political career if you want to call it that that he's gotten in and ever since then he's disdained having to be a politician uh, not because he's shaking things up but because he's a complete moron and, and he just wanted to go in there and be the big hero so anyway, people would be doing psychological studies on his form of of uh, narcissism for I don't know a long time probably, or maybe it's mm. just typical and it's not interesting. I don't know. I think that the things that are written by him are interesting. I tried to watch a cartoon about him and I got bored. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. That's that's fair enough. I think it's speculation about him, and you know. But when you when you see him talk, he he's pretty boring, especially because like sometimes it's funny because I don't know if you've watched the project, but um, there's a host on it called Peter Hellier, and he does this segment where he shows like on a meter where they think he's going via script, like what he's written down, and then going off script oh, when yeah. he's speaking, and it's actually pretty funny because. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can tell, can't you? Um, yeah. The whole mood of all his his <laughs> of all of the people who have to sort of are standing there around him. As soon as he starts to improvise, they think, "Ah, oh, God!" You know, you can you can sort of see it change, can't you? There, yeah. The whole mood and everything. Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's been a disturbing spectacle, and in my view, anyway, un- unfortunately, they. They had their shot. They called it socialism. The rest of the world just calls it, you know, being in the 21st century. Bernie Sanders, you know, talking about healthcare. Wow, how you know? 
I mean, far out, but anyway. Um, mm. Apparently that made him a so... Sure, in, I don't deny that in character it is socialist. We should acknowledge that so that we have a better understanding of what socialist policies are, broadly speaking, but uh, in character at least. But I think it's so unfortunate that they had their shot at that and, and that now they've got uh, Biden, who's just awful. But at least with him, you, you have a bit of... Uh, potentially a bit of stability, I suppose. But unfortunately, the machine will fire out that giant octopus America will just keep on um, you know, lazily kind of going around the whole world <laughs> anyway I, there are great people in America I don't mean to be so mean to Americans it's just that whole mm. system is so dreadful yeah. in my view anyway definitely um, so what has been the most interesting thing for you in lockdown I don't know. Um, as I said before, there have been some moments where you become conscious of other things. I guess like there's some something interesting about finding out what a, a life of that's not totally devoted to a routine form of labour. Like we have routines now. I think you need a routine mm. in a time of isolation and stuff, but. It's very different, isn't it? So, uh, to nine to five sort of working and stuff like that. So, it's been interesting to think about maybe what that sort of alternate life could be like. And also interesting to see, look, I mean, the most interesting thing to me has, has been the way that this crisis has, because of its magnitude, has highlighted all the crises that we live every day. So the crisis of inequality, um, that's highlighted that in an incredible way. In lots, in lots of different ways, it's, it's mm. highlighted that and brought that to people's attention, and I hope it remains in their attention. You know, I suppose it's highlighted, maybe for some people also, the way that the law works differently um, unfortunately, works differently for people of different, gee, how would I put it, for different minoritized, well, for any, basically, for minoritized people, it works in a really hostile way against them, that it doesn't for the white people, essentially. Mm. And, you know, so, I mean, I think that's been highlighted in different ways as well, when you consider you know, the way that the restrictions have been enforced in, in these uneven ways across different <clears throat> areas that are also to do with class and stuff as well, wealthy areas versus working class, so to speak, mm. more working class areas. And so it's been interesting noticing all of that and seeing that highlighted. And I think it's highlighted in a new way because we're living in a, a really big crisis right now. So all the crises that we've gotten used to and that we don't, you know, particularly those of us who are privileged, you know, the more privileged you are, unfortunately, and that's part of your privilege, I guess, the less aware you are of it, but all these crises of inequality and racial injustice and white supremacy and all these kind of things, I mean, look at the way that, again, uh, the different kind of political 
geez, political criminals in the world and, and inept sort of political operators in the world like Trump and Bolsonaro and others, look at the way that their incapabilities as supposed leaders, as opposed to just these sophists who manipulate people, look at the way that their ineptitudes have been highlighted as well in a really dreadful way. So which is really unfortunate, but at least now they're highlighted, so hopefully we can do something about it. So I think that's been interesting anyway. Oh yeah. So when you say in inequality, do you mean just racism or do you mean sexism and ageism? And... Well, there's so many different scales or, or so many different forms of inequality. What I meant specifically was wealth inequality. So, for instance, you know, the manner in which, well, for instance, you know, you try telling, you know, and I don't know a whole lot about, uh, I haven't read a lot about what's happening in, in, for instance, India, but I know that there were issues, and of course you can know it just on a, you know, kind of, you just think about it, you can know it at a logical level. I mean, try talking about uh, social distancing when people live in a slum. Uh, or, or even if people don't live in a slum or a ghetto or however you want to characterize the different sources of, of people's um, relegation to, to living in, in that kind of uh, atmosphere or community or whatever, and there are lots of different reasons, you can't sort of start to say that this crisis hasn't been experienced a qualitatively different sort of um, way across those different groups in society. And then what I was bringing up in terms of race is that, you know, of course, there is, you know, whiteness is a relative, I guess, a, again, I don't want to speak beyond what I'm qualified to speak about, but whiteness, as I understand it anyway, is a, a you know, kind of relative term or concept. And uh, so what I mean when I kind of say white in Australia is the homogenous kind of supposedly European, you know, that made-up category that we've made, because, mm. of course, there are different parts of Europe that are, are othered, and then there are other parts of Europe that are supposedly, you know, our great democratic source or whatever. So the invention of a white Greece, for instance, is one of them, or a white Rome that's not been influenced by, you know, anyone further east than whatever... Uh, Patmos or something. So, anyway, it has been enforced in the numbers you can see it. The amount of, of uh, infringements ordered or, or fee, uh, what would you call it, uh, fines that are across different um, categories of, um, I guess, what you would call privilege or whatever the opposite of privilege would be. It's been uh, enforced in different ways. So, in, as I was sort of saying before, in areas of the western suburbs that are a little bit more, perhaps a little more working class generally, but also I think more significantly that are um, ethnically more, well, less European basically, that's, there have been more infringements issued in those areas than there have been in places where there are uh, on my understanding, where, where there are way higher numbers, but a much more sort of, quote-unquote, 
you know, Australian white population and generally a lot wealthier as well. So we're seeing the way that, that inequality, I mean, and we always do, but maybe for us as younger people, it's interesting to see a really overt ex example and lots of different examples of how inequality isn't just a metaphor, but it's a reality that's lived by people. And for those of us who are privileged, I guess we have to consider and have to ask and, and you know, uh, how we can be allies to those people and, you know, try and work for a better, decented uh, future, so to speak, because it is white supremacy and it is classist. And, and I know it's really intense to say those things, but you kind of realise that, what, what else can you call it, you know? It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Do you think that the pandemic has forever changed the art world? Well, I don't know. Of course, it'll remain to be seen, I guess. I think, I don't know what the history is here, but I suspect it's happened at lots of different points in history. The thing that we have to be maybe conscious of if we're not already, which, you know, I have to admit, I only kind of discovered in the last couple of weeks, really thinking through, pardon me, thinking through my work in honours, in, in, you know, thinking through different institutions and different forms of criticism of institutions and so forth. There's art and there's an art industry. And the art industry makes the claim of, of being... So by the art industry, I guess I mean the, the way that, you know, we have different systems in place um, around uh, where you show work and how and for what reason. And work artwork is monetized um, and it's traded and it's speculative and... Uh, in the sense that, you know, it's kind of a market without... It's a market of total values, I guess, you know. So, uh, anyway, there's this whole system. And then, of course, education, monetized art education comes into it and everything as well. And they all make this claim that it's necessarily that. When, in fact, you know, we could... Um, and New MoMA, was, I was reading, was, was maybe a good example of this. The ways that actually museums can can look at different ways, and that's a modern art museum, can look at different ways of um, decentering their collections so that it's less Western-centric and it tells a broader societal story. So it's not about telling a new story, it's about telling the existing story in a more nuanced and detailed way so we understand it at a deeper level. So there's that, but then of course, you know, um, there's also the way that those that institution in particular could also have a, more of a public role that wasn't notional, that it was literal. So it could be actually being, you know, engaging with communities in a way that's not this kind of got this power hierarchy in which it's constantly just artists either asking, you know, treating the audience as subjects and asking them to participate and then go away and then monetizing the documentation or whatever. Um, but actually just being a community centre or something, you know, and actually just offering community services different ways that are appropriate to art, or that even might not be so strictly uh, or conventionally artistic mm. as well. Uh, you know, the ways in which, you know, I mean, you look at the, the art industry is so unequal 
in terms of how wealth is shared. Our university is part of it as well, but there are the people who who own the galleries and who trade, and then there are the manager and well, there are the big kind of speculators and the big um, dealers. There are a few of them, and then I guess, and then there are the really big artists, and they make lots of money. And there are a few of them. Then there's a giant. There's a big sort of managerial class, and they sort of make more or less ordinary money that normal people make. And then there are just a whole bunch of casualized workers and artists who sort of make nothing. So mm. we need to, I think, maybe look at ways that, uh, and again, I think the crisis kind of highlighted it: ways that we can have more e- a more equal kind of uh, art scene and think about what that different world might be. I suppose. Hmm. Definitely, that's a very interest, interesting perspective. I like it. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> so, do you have any advice for other artists and art lovers at this time? Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know if they, if my advice is. No, I don't know. I have a perspective, which is that maybe we shouldn't focus too much. As lots, it's not really my view, but it's a view that I agree with, which is that. Know, maybe we shouldn't be pressuring ourselves too much to be creating output at this time. And there is something actually that I would directly respond to, which is what um, my honors class has been told that I, I think is uh, well. It's a view that I disagree with for lots of reasons. I think it can be quite harmful, and that's that this is somehow a, con- a creative constraint. That the pandemic is something that we're supposed to be these genius artists about. Uh, you know that's an antiquated kind of idea about who artists are, and it's stupid uh, in my view because it it doesn't make any sense and it's been shown to be problematic in all these different ways um, mm. that I guess I won't go into. But um, yeah, I think calling this like in some ways it might be a lever or or it might be useful or something like that as. Um, I'm thinking about what Leonard Cohen has said about when he was asked about if he was worried that if he wasn't depressed anymore because he had depression, if he didn't get his depression anymore, would he lose his creativity? And he said, well, you know, that form of illness might be in some regards a lever or a creative source or something, but the work that, that when you're in that state, you can't do anything because it's a state of, that was also a state of crisis, I guess. So... Um, when you make work in times like these it's in spite of of what's happening, not because of it so that, anyway I, I think in my honours class at least that was what we were being told and I hope that's not what people are feeling elsewhere because it also discredits all the people who aren't dealing with it in, in, in an okay way and you know there was a I mean how many Paul Celans were there there was one and then there were just six million people who died so let's not kind of uh look at this as some sort of creative test or something or whatever i think that's silly it's a crisis you know let's not focus so much on monetizing it and making it into some kind of product or something mm. but you know it's a good time for critical reflection but I don't think people should be hard on themselves if they can't produce something at this time. It's, you know, 
the tortured artist, the artist in crisis or whatever is a silly notion and uh, yeah, let's not suffer for other people's notion of whatever, whatever's entertaining or inspiring for them or something, you know, yeah. it's silly. Yeah. Definitely. I think I personally get frustrated with the whole tortured artist um, trope or whatever you want to call it because um, I think that even artists have a right to pursue happiness. Exactly. And, and we all know anyway that it's not when things are in a terrible way that you somehow then sort of say, oh my goodness, I've got this wonderful idea, I'm going to go and paint a painting. No, you're just suffering the way that everyone else is, you know. Um, it's in reaction to, to horrible times that a lot of great things are made, but let's not also forget that you know, there's there's a Guernica and there's a Paul Celan and there's a um, oh, I don't know whatever all these kind of works that are deemed to be and and artists who are deemed to be um, people who uh, um, yeah they exemplify like using or Van Van Gogh or something you know using uh, crisis and and illness and all these things creatively well they didn't make their work when they were ill. And also, those are single people and single works of art, and all around them were a whole lot of other really amazing creative people who weren't doing creative things. And we shouldn't dis disrespect them mm. um, by saying that the standard or that the rule rather than the exception was that those people made some amazing things at that time, you know, or that those works were amazing works that reacted to a crisis. So... I think it's an exception to the rule and it's not something we should necessarily aspire to. It's just a bonus if it happens. Yeah, definitely. And I like how um, you're not totally influenced by what lecturers are saying. Like you, you take on what's useful, but you still have your own opinions and um, your own concepts of things. I think that's really good because... Um, I think people can get really lost in um, teaching, like like being taught, because um, they say, don't teach somebody what to think, teach them how to think. And I think it's good that you're, you're taking it on as how, like, you don't agree with everything your lecturers say, and I think that's good. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for um, being a guest on my podcast. It's been a real delight talking to you. No, thanks so much. I've enjoyed it as well. I've enjoyed it a lot. I hope it goes well. I look forward to listening to the, the episodes um, with uh, other people. And, yeah, it's been fun. Awesome. Cool. Well, you have a nice day and stay safe. Yeah, you too. All right, speak soon. Speak soon. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Getting Cultural in COVID Times. The proceeds that may come from this podcast will be going towards the upkeep of Virtuoso 9 Gallery, an interactive virtual gallery with a personal touch. To check it out, go to virtuoso9gallery.wixsite.com slash my site.